This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Assalamu alaikum, hello Allah, and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Today you're about to meet Dr. Jane Hawking, the first wife of 30 years of the late great Dr. Stephen Hawking. In a surprising interview with me, we spoke about her love of the Arabic language. She talks how and why she fell in love with Stephen Hawking and what she and Stephen really thought of the movie based on her best-selling memoir, Travelling to Infinity. That's all next, right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. It's such a pleasure to have you here you in the much. UAE. Now, you are somebody who's known as the wife of the late, great Stephen Hawking. Um, I, I want to kind of start out by asking you a couple of questions. One is quite a big one. Who is Dr. Jane Hawking? Who is she separately to Stephen? And how difficult was it to be constantly in his shadow? Uh, Sally, that is a big question. I was, of course, Stephen's wife and the mother of his children. And because Stephen needed a great deal of care and I was the principal caregiver, uh, most of the day, except when he was in his office. And then his wonderful students and colleagues um, helped him out. And those that was in the days before he was totally, totally disabled. Um, also taking children to school, picking children up after school, doing things with children, and uh, generally being wife and mother. However, when I was first married and came to Cambridge, I realized that in those days, long time ago now, wives and mothers, simply wives and mothers, were non-entities. So one had to have some sort of academic identity to be taken seriously. Mm. So I decided to start doing a PhD, and the PhD was um, in the early medieval poetry of the Iberian Peninsula, that's to say Spain with some of Portugal, but also with contacts in France and Italy and so on. Also involving um, Arabic. Not that I know any Arabic, but the little poems that I was studying called Harjas come right at the end of formal Arabic odes. Arabic, I should say, and Hebrew odes to elder statesmen, to um, relatives, and uh, they were absolutely enchanting, but it was very difficult to find the time to study properly and to write and to go to the university library and look things up there. So I had to maximize my time. And that's to say, when the children were not at home, um, when Stephen was not at home, I would dash off to the library. And uh, even when they were at home, I'd grab five minutes when the house was quiet to sit down and write. And finally, I finished the thesis 11, 12 years, nearly 12 years after I'd started it. It's a very long time, but actually my father had a friend 
and it had taken him 40 years to finish his thesis. <laughs> well, I thought that 11 or 12 years wasn't too bad. Actually, that's phenomenal, considering did, what you dealt with. I got to the end of it. And actually, I'm really rather pleased that I have, just lately. I haven't looked at it for a long, long time. But just lately, a friend has been composing music to accompany the harjas, these little endings, because I think harja means ending mm. in Arabic. Um, these tiny snatches of popular poetry incorporated into the formal um, Ara um, Arabic and Hebrew odes. And so I've been revising them and doing a little bit of translation. Wow. So you've gone back to it after I've all these years. I've gone back to it, yes. I think you need to spend a bit more time in the Middle East and explore Arabic poetry. Well, do you know, I think I ought to spend a little bit more time um, studying Arabic. <laughs> I think you really should. You... The only problem is that we are going to China in May, June. I have a feeling this won't be your last trip, though. And I think <laughs> that I need to study Chinese first. <laughs> Wow, the I love that. The thing is that basically I'm a linguist and I cannot bear to go to a country where I don't speak the language, where I can't simply say Sharafna. It's Sharafna. <laughs> to people. <laughs> and uh, I love that. I that, love that. That is just uh, is so it, frustrating for me. Have you learned any more Arabic since you've been here? Well, I was going to learn some Arabic on the plane. But I slept all the way. Let's, so. ha let's have a little, you know, a little try of it now. So, assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, you pronounce it so beautifully. Well, it's, it's not actually, it's because I'm a Spanish speaker and there's so much Arabic influence right. in Spanish. Right. The ha, for instance. Right, yeah. right. So, assalamu alaikum. Yeah. Assalamu um, alaikum. Yeah, peace be upon you. Or marhaba. Oh yes, marhaba. Yes, beautiful. Chalafna is another one. Don't give me too many. I no. need to write these down. I'll give I'm... you one more. Kif halik. Kif halik. Yeah, it means how are you? Ah, kid. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun just just to make this an Arabic lesson. I think it would indeed. And you can teach me some Spanish. <laughs> bueno, ¿por qué no? A mí me gustaría muchísimo. Oh, that's fabulous. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, of course, that would be great fun. I'd love to oh, speak to you in Spanish. That's gorgeous. Um, oh, we should just make this about language. Why this do could you... go on all afternoon, couldn't it? it? Could... See, this would be fun. about the other Please. interviews. Can we just do that? Yes. I'd love that. But I kind of want to start with you and maybe ask you the question, um, how... And why did you fall in love with Stephen Hawking in the first place? This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. How and why did you fall in love with Stephen Hawking in the first place? Because when we met in uh, on the 1st of January 1963, I was just bowled over by his sense of humour. It was so wonderful. And uh, he was quite eccentric. He looked rather a mess because he had a lot of floppy hair, but the most beautiful, limpid, blue-grey eyes and the most wonderful smile. And uh, this uh, comes out actually on the cover of <coughs> Travelling to Infinity, or at least mm -hmm. the cover before, the cover for The Theory of Everything. and. Uh, I was just uh, smitten yeah. with him. 
And then, of course, it was not long after that then the diagnosis came through. <clears throat> but do you know something? In those days, way back in the 60s, none of us thought we had very long to live. I mean, I was a teenager, for heaven's sakes, I was still in school. And um, we were told that we would have four minutes warning of a nuclear attack. And we lived under this threat of the mushroom cloud, mm. as it was called. So nobody thought they had a future extending into um, families, middle age, old age. And so it seemed to me that if Stephen's diagnosis was simply for two years more of life, mine was probably not much longer, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. That's so amazing. That was a completely different time. Nobody nowadays yeah. understands um, the stress of that time. Yeah. yeah. That we were all affected, not just adults, but uh, young people as well. Yeah. And um, I think it had a great deal of effect on our culture. We don't have a, a great deal of time, so I'm going to kind of skip through bits here. I just enjoy talking to you. <laughs> no, I'm, oh my gosh, I could talk to you for hours. It just, it's, yeah. Um, but so you fell in love with him and of course, um, you know, he was diagnosed and that was incredibly difficult. You weren't there for that, but you know, for normal people, you're dealing with motherhood anyway and dealing with that can just take so much out of you. But you became a carer as well to him. How did that change you and change the relationship? I don't think it did because I was very young and uh, I was very enthusiastic and uh, I had bags of energy. Yeah. Ask me now where that came from. I couldn't tell you. (laughs) It's extraordinary. um, In those days, I could cope with anything. I mean, for instance, Stephen said to me in 1967, um, would I like to go to Seattle? He'd had an invitation to a summer school in Seattle. So I said, yes. I said, I'll think about it. And then I said, yes. I didn't see why not, because I was at that stage six months pregnant. And I thought, well, um, tiny babies only eat and sleep. I can cope with that. So off we went to Seattle with uh, Stephen on one arm and uh, six-week-old Robert on the other. And I have to tell you, that nearly killed me. (laughs) (laughs) We don't see that in the movie, interestingly enough. No, we don't at all. The theory of everything, uh, yeah. There is so much missing Mm. from the movie. How did you feel when you saw the movie? Did you feel like it was an uh, an accurate uh, portrayal? It's beautiful, and emotionally, it's absolutely true. It really is. Um, it really, it touched, I mean, you know, we were all in tears, and well, so incredible. I'm going to be in tears when I see it. I'm introducing it this evening, and when I see it again, it's going to be even more poignant this time, because, of course, Stephen's no longer with us. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it was emotionally very true, and I wanted it to be true and sincere, and I didn't want it to be our story to be sensationalised. And I think they were true to that. They put in a lot of silly stuff. I mean, for instance, there's no mammoth statue of Queen Victoria in Cambridge, which is an awful scene, but never mind. What were the bits that they got right? The bits that they got right were the bits, I think, about our early marriage. A lot of science, and they got that right because that was very carefully vetted. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats.
Update with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. 95. It's Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, and I'm in conversation with Dr. Jane Hawking, the former wife of the late Dr. Stephen Hawking. Here she tells me what Stephen thought of the movie, which depicted his life, and Jane tells me why she wrote the memoir that the film was based on. What did Stephen think of it, the movie? He would have liked it to be more about science and less about emotion. And that really? is a quotation from Stephen. Yes. And I'm the exact opposite. Wow. How did, like, that's incredible. You know, it's like the, the opposites attract theory, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Between the two of you. You know, how was that? I mean, he was in his scientific world. You're very much arts, creativity, music, linguistics. What was that like? Well, he was very keen on music. And he encouraged my music. The one thing he didn't encourage, though, was my interest in the ballet. And when we were first married, Giselle came on at our local theatre. So I got tickets to take him, one afternoon actually, and uh, it was enchanting. But Stephen complained of a very bad headache in the first act. So I had to take him home in the interval. However, I got my back on him because we went to Moscow and uh, we were invited to the Bolshoi and he had no choice. He had to sit through, I don't know how many performances of the Bolshoi, the Nutcracker, Sleeping Beauty and so on and so forth. So um, we were quits after that. (laughs) So for you, um, was it really difficult that kind of that toll that the caring for him took? What was that like for you? I did find it, um, it became a huge strain. Mm. Eventually, as I got older and I had three children, um, and he was wanting to go all over the world just to pick up honorary degrees at honorary degree ceremonies. And he had honorary degrees from Oxford and from Cambridge. And I thought, well, what more? So I said, well, look, I was prepared to take him to collect honorary degrees in. Uh, the British Isles, mm-hmm. but not to go off all over the world because it was I, too much. Became, it was too much. Too was. much for you. Yes. And it did all get too much for me. And really, um, the last straw was the very necessary intervention of nurses and carers mm. in our household. Mm. But they had their own agenda. And uh, the family and I, I say, we were metaphorically pushed into a corner as if we didn't matter and we should be worshipping the ground under the wheels of Stephen's wheelchair. That was the rather sad end of our story. Yeah. But still, Stephen lived for a long time um, and he had his own home not very far from ours and we managed to keep the family going, how we had family gatherings together, um, which were wonderful. How did you kind of reclaim yourself after all of that and come back to who Jane is? Oh, by doing all the things that I'd wanted to do for a long time. One of them, writing, and of course writing my memoir, and then going into writing novels. What was your intention when you wrote your memoir, when you wrote the autobiography? Oh, I had various uh, intentions. Um, One was a very practical intention, and that was that... uh, unauthorised biographies were beginning to appear 
And uh, I was quite indignant about this, and I thought, well, if anybody's going to write the story of our lives, I'll jolly well do yeah. it myself. Yeah, yeah. And so I did. And uh, what did you I was just reluctant. Yeah, what did you discover when you wrote it? Sometimes when you write oh, your life story. Oh, it was cathartic, story. totally cathartic. And then um, the uh, next thing was, I wanted to offload a huge burden of memories, which I had going back decades. And then the third thing was that I wanted to bring the horrors of motor neurone disease to the attention of, well, literally everybody, the government, um, the health service, doctors, nurses, care, um, other carers, um, in the hope of helping sufferers from the illness and their families who acted as carers. So I had those three main reasons. Raising awareness so important. But I also asked Dr. Jane about the greatest thing that she learned from Stephen. Well, because of Stephen's disability, he couldn't write with pen and paper. He had to do all his um, mathematics in his head. And from that, I learned the um, advantage of going straight to the heart of any matter. Mm and not necessarily looking at all the details, but being intellectually quite rigorous. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I want to ask you, you're a writer yourself, books that have had the greatest impact on you in your life? Oh, I think, to start with in English, Jane Austen for her style of writing, and then um, later authors, of course, all of great Victorian greats, but also in Spanish, I've done, read a lot of Spanish novels, and uh, the novels of Pérez Galdós in Spanish, but particularly in Russian, War and Peace. I adore Tolstoy. Amazing, wonderful. I'm afraid we're going to have to end it. Um, there are other interviews to do, yes, yes. but what a joy to talk to you. Thank Dr. you so Jane. much, Sally. That was wonderful. Can I ask something of you? Yes, please? of course you can. Could you leave for me at the desk, um, or just outside, or even here, the um, little snatches of Arabic? You just taught me. Of course I can. Write them down in English. Oh my uh, goodness. English script. Do you want me? I can. I don't know if if you with want the translation, that. With translation, down for me. That'd be such a help. Oh my god! I, I can use them this evening. Oh, <laughs> Do you of mind? course, I'll write them down right now. <laughs> I tell you what, when uh, Dr. Jane Hawking asks you to teach her a bit of Arabic, you absolutely do it. She was such a delight, a gentle softly spoken woman with such a big spirit and a thirst for knowledge what an incredible incredible life this is pulse 95 tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m